people want to create communities where they can support each other and grow. Welcome to the Food Startups Podcast. You just need the packaging to shout off the shelf. It's a different world when you actually think about adding value. But to be able to play now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. Hang out with us and learn how to grow your food business. Hello, and welcome to episode number 123. Today, we're going to tell the story of someone that grew up in the suburbs of New York. He is the son of Italian immigrants who had that entrepreneurial work ethic from the get-go and will tell his story about learning about uh, multifamily homes and apartment units and watching his dad uh, become a landlord and everything he learned doing that, his thoughts on design, architecture, conservation, and food. And he has evolved as an adult to co-found Open Door, which is a co-working and co-living spaces. So we talk a lot about co-working and co-living. The the why behind that, because it's a very popular trend now, and and their thoughts on on that. I believe some of you listening have already gone to a co-working space, probably most, and may or may not have gone to a co-living space. And then we talk about their machine, their smart machine, which is an indoor hydroponic growing machine called Root. It's incredible. So yeah, enjoy the show. With a lifelong passion for environmental conservation work, he pursued a master's degree in architecture at the University of Pennsylvania with a focus on designing green spaces that improve communities' health. His master's thesis was a holistic approach to retrofitting existing dwellings, including a scalable agriculture product that can sustainably produce food, grow local economies, and foster communities. He has experience in designing projects for informal settlements abroad, including working with the Konkoi Design Initiative, listeners, I probably pronounced that wrong, in Nairobi, Kenya, to build sanitation blocks and a playground, along with public housing concepts in Thailand. After working abroad, Eric has also worked on managing a real estate portfolio, and he fosters this passion for sustainable community-focused design through building Root and another project he has called Open Door, which we'll get into. And so what is Root? Root is, just like listeners we had with the Spin Coffee Machine, it's another amazing machine. It's I'll call it an amazing, smart, indoor growing machine. It's the first smart indoor gardening system that allows you to grow your own flowers, herbs, and leafy green plants at home with no soil, no mess, and no stress. I like that slogan there. Uh, And just 30 inches tall, the root system fits neatly on any countertop or room. Simply plug it in, um, select what you're growing on the root app, and you're ready to grow. As I mentioned, he is a partner and advisor for Open Door, which is developing collaborative living spaces in the Bay Area. So think, uh, I don't know, co-working, co-living. The eventual goal is to build more sustainable communities that integrate root technology to bring more gardens into urban areas. Eric DeFeo, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. 
and and thank you, Marion, for for putting us in touch. Uh, Marion Zizzo, as I've mentioned before, has put me in touch with some really high quality people and guests on the show. Yeah, she's great. Great spirit. Yeah. And so it's cool that you have these these multiple startups going and all the things you've studied are kind of culminating in two root. But I want to go back first and talk about your childhood. Where did you grow up and, and what was your childhood like? Yeah, I grew up in Westchester, New York, in a town called Mount Vernon, which is basically the first suburb outside the city. It sits right on top of the Bronx. I grew up the youngest of five. Uh, my dad was an entrepreneur. He came from Italy. He literally came on the boat from Italy after World War II uh, with his siblings, and they started uh, a real estate business Geez, 50 years ago now, he started that with his brothers who were barbers. My dad was an engineer, and so he took a pool of money from his brothers who actually made a decent living being barbers in our town of Mount Vernon, and they bought their first building, and he took care of it, dealt, dealt with all the maintenance. He saved a lot of money because he knew how to manage all the systems in the building. So. My childhood was a lot of going to these buildings, spending time with my dad. And I think that's a common story with many immigrant parents that come to America and all they know is is work. And my dad was always working. So any time I really spent with him was going on sites, going on job sites. <laughs> I'm laughing. It's like, but not quite like uh, our current president-elect, who my dad was <laughs> not dealing with any sort of glamorous buildings, but just your regular average multifamily properties in Mount Vernon and Yonkers and, and parts of Connecticut. And, you know, these were largely cities that have been forgotten um, by progress and technology and capitalism. I would say they're like old Rust Belt towns. So a lot of our tenants were blue collar or just low to mid income and really good people and um, making making a living as you would. And I just became fascinated by these buildings and, and what they could become. I was always a very creative kid. Uh, we lived in a house that my dad built it took him five years to build. So that was also an inspiring place to be. Uh, it wasn't the perfect house. There was always something to to deal when you build your house and it's all custom. We always were dealing with maintenance issues. It was like a big house. Um, and I, from that day forward, I was like fascinated with design, but I also always wanted to live in a small little more communal environment. Uh, our house was kind of cold, but it backed up to the woods. And I always spent a lot of time in the woods building forts with friends. I was the youngest of five. So my parents didn't really have too much structure around me. They were, they kind of like did that with the first two kids. Um, and I could do whatever I want. So I ended up just being more creative and always making things, uh, either in the backyard or, or in the basement, I was always taking old materials, uh, and I always liked the idea of becoming an architect. So, yeah, my childhood was fairly comfortable. I feel very lucky for that, and because of that, I've always wanted to give back to people and, and make the world a better place to live for everybody. Wow, Eric, so it, great description there, and uh, I really felt like I was there, and I saw your childhood, but also another nice part of it is that 
your childhood goes directly into what you're doing now. I'm sure you've realized that. And one thing I'd like to mention, I mentioned this a couple episodes back. We've had a number of people whose parents had immigrated into the United States. And what gets lost amongst the news, well, I guess a lot of things get lost among the news, as we both know, but legal immigrants. And there's this book that I recommend to everyone called Immigrant Incorporated. And it just shows that legal immigrants into the United States outperform, we'll say, the quote-unquote average third, fourth generation American by by leaps and bounds. So what you mentioned, the, the, the immigrant entrepreneurial culture, always working culture, to me, it's fascinating to see how that plays out into it, the, uh, the future generations. Yeah. And my dad didn't have any fancy degrees. I think he had what now we like to call grit, uh, like that book. Um, but I think he just like had it in him to make a better life for him and his family. He really cared about providing for his, his brothers and his nieces and nephews and you know, my family as well. And he just showed his love differently. You know, we, we didn't play baseball in the backyard. I don't think he really knew much about baseball or anything like that. So we just spent a lot of time together, like in boiler rooms. <laughs> and I was like bored out of my mind. But <laughs> does he still talk with that like, like Italian accent speaking English? A little bit. I don't, I don't even notice it. People notice it, uh, but it's just, uh, it doesn't phase me so much. But I see him as he's gotten older, um, that because he's worked so much, that that's all he sort of knows. And having hobbies is, he had hobbies and he um, collected cars and he worked on them, but he just loves working and building his business. And for me, I see myself doing that a bit, I, but I'm also trying to balance that out with a little more work-life balance. And, you know, as you're building a startup, you just become all consumed. And actually in the last year, I've started to take a larger perspective on what I'm doing and also just build in more fun into what I'm doing. I, I do a lot of work um, with Landmark, Landmark Forum, uh, and that helps me gauge how my life is going. And, you know, as I'm, you know, I don't want to... Eric, sorry to interrupt here, but can you define what, what is the Landmark Forum? Yeah. So the Landmark Forum is, it's basically a professional uh, self-development training company, and it's all about developing what matters to you most and uh, creating a life that you love and is balanced. And uh, I noticed as I was building my company, I was becoming sort of like my dad, where I'm just becoming a workaholic and and relationships become like secondary. And and I've started to reverse that a little bit where I've spent more time now on my relationships with people and uh, spending more time outside of work so that I can be more productive in my actual work. So I've been spending a lot of time in in just creating a work-life balance and helping other people do that as well. Because, uh, you know, I, I had developed some bad habits in grad school where everybody's always like working around the clock, uh, and doing as much as we can. There was like no sleep. And I don't think that was the most productive way of working. Um, and I think as you get older and as most people get older, you start to take a step back and, and manage your life a little with, more intention and less like, I got to get this done. <laughs> um, that was a lot of my life. <laughs> it's tough, Eric. It's really tough because I think a lot of the people I've talked with on the show, myself included, I mean, you're in the heart of entrepreneurship near San Francisco. And 
on one hand, you have to bring it in the sense that uh, your startup, you're in, you're in a competition with other people, right? And you want to, you, you mm-hmm. really want it to succeed. Um, and on the other hand, like you mentioned, like there's this work-life balance. And I think that's something that maybe we don't always figure it out or some people do as they get older, but just getting better at work-life balance, I guess, is, might be a better way to put it because I'm sure you hear friends be like, oh, like I, I recently just uh, went on a hike and one of the guys on the hike told me about this guy, this England who moved to Portugal and he set up this like co-working, co-living space where they surf during the mornings and they work in the afternoon. I was like, that sounds awesome. But I'm like, but I'm also thinking, mm-hmm. yeah, Matt talking to myself, you're really trying to break develop Colombian agriculture. So how do you balance that? And, and, uh, it, it just, it's interesting because you want to think about how to live, right? It's, it's a very important question. And, um, yeah. and uh, I, I used to be really hard on myself and I'm way less hard on myself now, just seeing it as imperfect, but kind of accepting that I'll be imperfect and trying to, how should I put this? Yeah. Just like any type of skill, think of work-life balance as like playing the guitar or whatever it is and just getting better at that as, as we age and, and get older. Yeah. I mean, we have this culture in America where people are defined by their work and me growing up in New York. uh, Oh my God. It was all about your work and your resume and going to an Ivy league college and then going, getting a great job and being a doctor lawyer or, or whatever. And it can be really limiting. Uh, and it's where I grew up was not very entrepreneurial focus. I not many of my friends' parents were entrepreneurs. They had they either like worked on Wall Street or, which is you know noble and whatnot. But it was uh, not. It's not, it wasn't what I wanted per se. And I, I like that my my dad was always like, why do you, why do you want a boss? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And I'm not against having a boss, but I also liked creating my life and designing my life outside the norms of society. And I feel like society puts a lot of pressure on everybody having living to these certain expectations of having a one family house and the kids with the fence. And, and I think that's great for people who want that. And I just didn't see that for me. I just, for me, I could live in a, a small home and like growing up in a big home, actually, I just saw how much of a prison it could be. And still for a lot of people, even in a medium sized home, you're constantly taking care of it. You're always worrying about it uh, or you got to fix something or the skylight is leaking. Uh, it was just like, geez, like I don't want to spend my life fixing a house. And actually that's what was appealing when I met Jay and Ben of Open Door, this idea of co-housing and collaborative living. And that was research I was also doing in grad school when I was looking into European models, like in Holland especially, where there's a community of homes and they're connected by a common space. And maybe there's a single mom there with kids and she can't cook every night, but the community can help. They can trade off cooking. Um, so it was really fascinated by people in Europe creating these new standards of living and not living through what society expects them to have and, and want. So it's interesting, Eric, I relating this to Europe, it's more common in us. Well, if you meet somebody, what do you say? What do you do? Right? Like, what do you do? Uh, you know, what is your job? Right? What are you doing? Where in Europeans that I've met, it's, it may not be the first question. It's a little bit like, uh, it's not as important. And again, I'm uh, stereotyping in big time here, but I'm just like percentage wise, it seems like in the US we're more trained to ask people right away, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And uh, another a book that you may like that I'd recommend everyone listening to this show that I just finished is called Your Money or Your Life. Have you, have you read it? No. 
but that's oh, great. <laughs> yeah, and so this guy, Mr. Money Mustache, like a lot of people that are in like the personal financial liberation field, this is kind of like their Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it's actually a very deep way to look at money, which is not good or bad, um, but it kind of goes to that whole big house where where you you work so you can buy this, and then you you go up in terms of your income bracket, and then you start spending more because you want to be part of this income bracket, and uh, it just talks a lot about kind of consumption and thinking about the way. Understanding what you really, really value, not what you may, maybe you feel like you're supposed to value in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I got too is opinions. So it's like we all we all feel like we need to have opinions on all these really very, very complicated world affairs um, in, in national affairs, which there's nothing wrong with that. But you don't have to have an opinion on a lot of things. And most things as you as you delve deeper to, into a lot of fields, you realize how little you know. You don't need to have an opinion. And that was kind of liberating for me to read. I was like, oh, yeah, I don't. My opinion is not necessary on 95% or 99% of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But cool. Well, you mentioned the the co-working and, and co-living spaces. So tell us about uh, Open Door. Yeah. Um, so as I was doing my master's thesis in school, it was actually called Open Door. I was looking at one of our family's properties and seeing how we could retrofit the building and make it a more livable environment. Like my family has always like provided like most people, like like just good quality apartments and a standard where people can live and just the basics, right? There's roof and water and, and shelter. And what I noticed as I was working with my family that my sisters sometimes were like social workers to the tenants where tenants would call and things would come up and can't pay the rent this month. This is going on. And my sisters would actually like work through with the people like how to manage their life and give them advice. It was really interesting, that relationship. And I was like, how do we mediate the relationship between the landlord and tenant so that it's not always intention like, oh, you owe me rent and it's due on the first. And if it's late, if there's a late fee and all this, you know, but how do we actually make a community that's thriving? And what if we could actually the place where people lived could do more than just provide shelter and support for people, especially in these towns where maybe there aren't the most jobs available, or oftentimes there was tenant turnover because uh, they lost their job, not because they didn't like the building. So the building was fine. It was kept to a standard, but there it was a transient nature of the tenant. So I was interested in putting in an intervention. And when I was doing that, I was researching urban farming, or just a lot of information, a lot of interventions into housing structures and urban farming just came up a lot uh, in Detroit and Europe. And I was like, well, this is a really great model. I don't need to recreate the wheel. A lot of people think that they need to like invent a whole new thing. But I was like, well, what if we integrated this urban farming into buildings? And my, my thesis was on a scaffolding system that wrapped the building and created both community farms and would generate also energy for the building and act as a, a curtain wall when in architecture, you have curtain walls that mediate the, the heat and the cold that goes in between the buildings. Actually, there's a horrible explanation for, um, it's been a long time since architecture school has migrated away, but you know, it would do so many things. It would be like this performance wall around the building and the landlord would have happy tenants, um, increase the value of the building. The tenants would be happy because a lot of our tenants were coming from, um, other countries where they were used to having backyard gardens. And now they're living in these urban environments where there's not as much greenery. And I was also re- reading studies about how the more greenery in, in certain area 
areas of urban cities, uh, there was less crime. So in studying and, and talking to my now partner, Brielle, in grad school, and she was always talking about the biophilia hypothesis about, you know, we gravitate as humans towards plants and we're happier around plants. So anyway, one day my my friend Emily, who was also in grad school with me, she sent me this article called Open Door in, in the Atlantic. And I'm like, this is the name of your thesis. They took your idea. And I'm like, oh, I don't think they took my idea. I think they're doing a great job. And they were starting more housing from the ground up, they were taking an existing building and interviewing people for the house and creating a community within that house. And it was usually a 12 bedroom house or so with 12 to 14 people. And so I reached out to them actually, just like we are like on Skype. <laughs> um, and I was like, Hey, my thesis is like open door. I was more interested in retrofitting existing buildings. Um, but I, it's interesting how you guys are just creating these communities around the Bay area and they were having a lot of success and Obviously, that's driven a bit by the housing crisis and people not wanting to spend so much on rent. But what we found was, you know, people are also living in these housing, collaborative housing environments because they want to. They want more community. You know, being from New York, I lived in Manhattan, and it can be a very lonely place where people are cooped up in their apartments alone. And you may not even know your next door neighbor on the same floor. Um, some buildings are maybe better at that than others, but for the most part, it can be very lonely for people living in these urban environments. And we're also working a lot, and then you're coming home alone and maybe eating alone. So these community houses are really appealing to a new generation of, you know, millennials. Uh, typically, the people in the houses are like from 25 to 35. Maybe they're freelancers. They're working on new projects and ideas. So they almost become like these housing incubators in a way. Uh, and there's a lot of these different types of houses around the Bay Area now. Uh, there's different artists, residencies. An open door is differentiated and it's a little more of a curated environment. And it, unfortunately, with the nature of this recent fire in Oakland, uh, you were dealing with a landlord that was not paying attention to any of the fire codes and, and hazards of that. So that gave a bad name to a lot of the artist residences that are in the East Bay in San Francisco. And hopefully the only thing good out of this is that people will start paying attention more. And me coming from the son of a landlord, I was always paying attention to the CO2 alarms and uh, the sprinkler systems and wherever I moved in. And my dad, every time I moved somewhere, he was always asking, have you checked the fire escape? Did you did you check these things? A lot of people are not used to doing that. But the goal of Open Door is to provide housing that is very livable and it's not your typical like dirty commune, but there's actually people have responsibilities and you're not going to leave, you can't leave just dishes in the sink and there's accountability and just so it becomes a place where people can, can thrive and it's not a dumpy place to live. <laughs> so let me see if I can summarize this. So let's just say I'm a, I'm, I'm Steve. I'm a 28 year old web designer, right? Well, uh, that will be the, mm -hmm. the persona. I, I apply to get into open door. Um, as, as a mm -hmm. web designer, I get the profile. It seems like you don't let everyone in. They have to make sure they fit with the house. And then I get in there, I get a, I get a bed, some chores, maybe help work on the garden. And then I, you know, I have access to a community of, We'll say like-minded people, um, and uh, so it, it kind of gives me a community. Especially if I've never lived in, let's say, San Francisco, I have a built-in community to start with. They 
kind of get familiar with the city. Um, and also my projects, there should be some smart minds in there um, that maybe will be able to help me advance my my entrepreneurial projects. Yeah, exactly. In one of our houses, there was a mix of people, anyone from a, a lawyer to a chef to an experiential artist. So they all contributed something different to the house. And so the chef managed uh, all the food that came in and out. Um, and it was really great because she got really great food for the house. So everybody was eating top of the line meals at below market rate because you can buy wholesale. So people were really well nourished in our house. Wow. I think myself and other people listening are interested. It's like, wow, I'm going to do that. That sounds really cool. Can you do it for a month or do you have to commit to six months? How does that work out? So we like to have people commit for as long as possible. We, like I said, we don't want to keep the house to be so transient uh, in nature. Some communal living places have people come in and out. We used to have guest rooms and sometimes having people always come in and out. It kind of created a disturbance. And then like guests are always asking like, oh, how do you live like this? And people who live there don't want to always explain like why they're living. Yeah, it's like, what's the story? Yeah. And where are the spoons? Yeah. Or things right. like that, right? And it's like, it was, it's, you know, some, some houses have it, some don't. Some houses feel like, you know what, we're good. Um, they rented that guest bedroom instead. Um, and some, some work with it. So every house has its own sort of vibe and ecosystem of people and yeah, they both, each house it's interesting takes on its own personality and that's why they interview the people to, before coming in just to make sure people are going to be happy. And, and the goal over time is for people to take ownership of the house and not it be some place where people come in and out, but people feel a sense of belonging there as well. And, and Eric, yeah, I, I love it. I think one thing I've, I've learned uh, just from speaking with you and seeing a lot of co-working spaces in DC, co-working and co-living spaces, DC, New York, and, and now in South America, the just like anything, right? You can't just open a, a space, throw some bean bags, um, get a colorful like counter ta- like tabletop and serve good coffee and call it a co-working space and everything's just gonna develop. You have to put conscious thought in into the, the design and architecture of and the why behind the the space. Um, so it's a very, very sacred thing, Yeah, this co-working and co-living. And it's not something that just like anything, you can't just start a restaurant. Um, you have to really think about it. And, um, so I'm glad you're, you're, you're contributing to that, to that movement. Eric, I, well, I'm really interested in the, in the co-working and co-living stuff and I want to learn more, but I do want to make sure we get into Root, this, uh, this beautiful machine and listeners, this podcast can be found at foodstartupspodcast.com slash Root. And uh, the device, if, you, if you're if you at a computer right now, go to growwithroot.com and you can see the machine that is going to be available uh, any day now. So first question, how long did it take you to develop the prototype? Um, so we've been working on prototypes for four years now. Like I said, when I was working on the larger scale system for a building, I was reaching out to my friend Brielle, who was at grad school with me, uh, and she was working on the original version of Root, so a smaller scale system, and she was studying how LEDs were manipulating plant growth. And that's where our relationship developed. So she was at the time working with PVC pipes, um, ordering LEDs from Alibaba, you know, just hacking, making a total hacker system. And it was awesome. 
So that was about four years ago. And it's taken just over a year now after we did the Dream Adventures Accelerator to talk to manufacturers and help get our early prototypes into a manufacturable state. So it's been it's been a while. And where are they being produced? Um, we're actually doing them in the States. Yeah. And that's our goal as a company is to also make these as sustainably as possible. Uh, and that's part of our, our mission as a company beyond having a garden in every home, but that these gardens don't contribute more pollution to the planet. We're big into a lot of our background is into cradle to cradle design, which is making something that will last for a long time, but then over time can degrade. So for instance, we use plant plastics for our pods that go into the root system. So you plant the seed in our pods and it will grow a plant for your 30 to 60 days. And when you discard it, or you can even replant it in the ground, it will uh, decompose it's as it's biodegradable material. That's awesome. And, and so with an app, I plant these pods, let's say it's kale, celery, marrow, whatever it is. I have it in there. And is this something where I can have it connected and I could go on a vacation for a couple of weeks and it would still take care of itself? Yeah. The idea is that you can leave for like a week and a half and your plants will okay. still grow. The only maintenance you would do as you use the unit is basically just adding nutrients every two weeks. So as long as you have someone around to add nutrients to the system, um, you're good. But otherwise, there's enough water in there for a full growth cycle. Great. And and how much does the machine cost? So it's $2.99. And for that, you get the root indoor garden, which has its own lighting and watering system. And you'll get our nutrients, seeds, and the pods in which you can put the seeds in. You can choose to use your own seeds or you can use ours. Fantastic. Well, cool. And I, I want to I ask you about something. Indoor growing, right? Just like a lot of things, I've been trying to get my head around it. There's the, the smart machines like Root. There's the, I know in Detroit, they have those buildings where they do the, the indoor the indoor farms. Where do you see this going in, in the next 10 years? Will this always be a niche or do you think it could potentially produce a higher percentage of food on earth than traditional outdoor agriculture? I mean, I think this is where farming is going, and that could be a, an endless debate. Um, there's definitely people who are soil purists and want to spend more energy and time uh, regenerating brown fields and, and enriching our soil, and I think that's really important. I think there's going to always be this give and take between the two, between the traditional outdoor farming and indoor farming, just because of rapid population growth, the rate in which our topsoil is depleting and we have less and less land to be farming. With the indoor hydroponic system, we could be farming closer to cities and even in cities. You see companies like Gotham Greens popping up, uh, like these rooftop farms trying to grow closer to the city. So with hydroponics, you can grow four times the amount in a smaller amount of space. Hydroponics, however, is costs you much more in the initial investment than a traditional farm. And hydroponics but, is just all underwater? Yeah. So hydroponics is basically growing plants in water. And the reason why we add nutrients is to replace all the elements and natural chemicals that would otherwise be in soil. So that's why you add nutrients so that the plants get a, you're simulating soil for them. 
and actually there's yeah there's also controversy over organic hydroponics and i think there's actually i haven't been paying too close attention but they're working on certification for organic hydroponics because technically organic is grown in soil that's where like the word comes from so but yeah i think vertical farming is taking off in a lot of places like uh, singapore it's really used huge japan especially where people are really concerned about uh, water contamination and with hydroponics you can control what water goes into the system and, and whatever inputs it's unfortunate that there is continuous water contamination around the world and you know when we share root with asia especially where all the industry is happening and they have horrible reviews for water the new generation is becoming more interested in what they can do because this is water is life actually our company is called oneka farms which means water in in mohawk um, but oneka was a little too <laughs> complicated for people to pronounce so we just went with root for our brand but yeah i think we get a lot of interest in emails from around the world and the Middle East is looking into hydroponics and how they can be farming in the desert. And that's a whole other question, whether or not people should be living there in the first place, in like arid places and places like Las Vegas. But Dubai. Yeah, whether or not we should be really developing civilizations around non-fertile ground. And But that's a whole other debate. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. And it's so cool. Though. I, I really love your website. So you have the, the hydroponics and so these pods, they do not have soil in it, but a different type of plant food. What exactly do they have inside the pods? So the pods are actually a proprietary design. We have a patent pending on them. So traditional in hydroponics is people do grow in, they're called net pots. They look like these baskets with perforated holes. And uh, typical in hydroponics, they put in uh, what we call a substrate to hold the seed it's a porous material, but that could also, the seed can sit in to support root growth. And in, oftentimes in hydroponics, they use rock wool, which is fiberglass, and sometimes people even use styrofoam. So it's often not the best material to be growing your plants that you're then eating in because whatever toxins are in the, that material is then leaching into your water. So what we did with these root pods is that we put compressed cocoa, which is becoming more common in hydroponics, and that is basically coconut shavings. That is a more natural option to, to grow your seed in. And so the cocoa acts like a soil to give the seed room for growth. So it's the copra. It's like the coconut meat. Yes. It's the shavings on the cocoa. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I just want to put in a plug in here for the coconut. What an amazing palm fruit because there's just i'm sure you know this eric like if you're on an island if you're, anyone listening is ever stranded on a desert island and there's coconuts and you get dehydrated it acts as a natural iv because of its uh ph balance the uh the, the coconut water it's coconuts is one of those things where there's so many uses for it it's 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 amazing yeah for sure and it's great it's um it's also mold resistant so a lot of times mold will grow on, on rock wool and hydroponics and because they're often sitting in water, our, our pods that sit in our system are getting sprayed throughout the day with water, but they're not sitting in water. So to also avoid any sort of mold buildup and the pod itself, which is, it looks like plastic. It looks like people always think it's this reusable plastic, but it's actually made from plant resins uh, derived from sugar cane. 
that we work with a manufacturer on, and they did a. We spent a lot of time on the R and D developing this and and making it great to to grow plants in. And what's great is that you can also use these outside of the system, and there's potential to just start replacing the traditional net pots that use the rock wool and, and traditional plastic. So this could be a great sustainable solution that doesn't leave a footprint behind. Wow, I mean, it's there's a video. Actually, where is the video? Because when we first touched base, there was a video, I believe, on the homepage. I don't see it right off the, the top. But the reason I, I want to recommend that to the to people listening is just so much thought into every the why and every single part of this machine. It, it's, uh, it's incredible. Yeah, the video, I think it's floating on Vimeo somewhere. <laughs> we took it down because we actually redesigned the unit after our first oh, okay. Indiegogo. We got a lot of great feedback uh, on the unit and what we could do. We made the pods a little bigger so we can do bigger plants in the system. Uh, we wanted this to be a, a product of utility and not something novel that you use once. That just looks good yeah. in your house, right? Yeah. But like you can actually have a mini farm in your house and you can have a root for your herbs, a root for your lettuce and kale and have like a little operating farm that replaces the grocery store because and, and actually, grocery stores are looking into these systems now to make produce fresher and more appealing to their customers because this produce is traveling miles to get to you. And oftentimes it's losing nutrients. It's losing its flavor, just losing its quality. And the time you bring it home, it's, you know, your rosemary is no longer useful after a few days. So at least with root, you can keep your plants alive and you'll always have maximum nutrient intake for, for you. So. You know, we had a farm in, in Westchester, New York, and the plants we grew were just amazing. And we realized a lot of people don't have access to having these great plants, and they taste different than the grocery store. A lot of people don't really know what a tomato tastes like because <laughs> mass farming waters down everything, and the tomato ends up tasting like water. And you're like, but if you taste it, an heirloom tomato on a farm, it's just amazing. I'm just sure you have. in your own garden, right? In the home garden. It's yeah. so different. Yeah, you can just eat it without any salad dressing. <laughs> yeah. Well, Eric, and uh, listeners may or may not know, everyone that comes on the show, I don't take any sponsors or anything like that. So there's no financial incentive, but I'm definitely going to buy one of these. I'm just thinking in my head if I can... I don't think I'd have a problem bringing this down to South America, right? With uh, with customs, if I bring the machine down, correct? No, no. The only thing I'd think about were the seeds, if they somehow found the seeds. Um, yeah, yeah. You may want to just... Leave just get my own seeds. Yeah. But no, this is awesome. Right. Well, well, Eric, to finish up here, there's so much potential with everything you're doing here. And you mentioned earlier the whole idea of kind of connecting everything. And you have these these interests in, in environmental conservation and community building. And so... I guess eventually in Open Door, you'd like to have these root units um, in your co-working, co-living spaces for Open Door? Yeah, for sure. My goal at the end of the day is to work towards housing developments that are more sustainable, where people can thrive and be happier without you know, the prison of having uh, a huge house or um, other things to worry about and really living in community because I think that what I've seen from, from traveling the world and even when I go into the houses at Open Door, I just immediately feel at home and, and comfortable and it's a safe space for people to be who they are and 
I just think we could all be living with less things and experiencing more in, in life and, and experiencing more community dinners and experiencing more travel, better food. And that's what I want to create because I think we've become very isolated as a society. I think people are really looking towards more community. And I think that's a universal truth that I adhere to that people want to create communities where they can support each other and grow. I feel like a lot of people, maybe not everybody, but <laughs> I think a lot of people do. And a lot of people may not even yeah. realize it. There's so much in their own heads be, and as many great things as we have with technology, including in the root machine, right? Controlled by an app, but the always being connected and, and all this digital connection, but like increased digital connection, but less in-person connection. Yeah. I'm a hundred percent in agreement with that, Eric. And so another incredibly exciting industry in the U.S. and I guess in the world as well mm -hmm. is marijuana. And it, it seems like you mentioned that a lot of uh, marijuana growers are interested in, in your technology as I guess for commercial and maybe residential marijuana development. Yeah, that was <laughs> a lot of uh, interest we've gotten as we've been out in the market people automatically connect hydroponics with cannabis. And that's basically because when cannabis became illegal, people moved indoors and that's where indoor growing technology took off and people began developing new ways of growing inside. You know, they were using all these materials that we're now using. And yeah, I mean, we, we don't consider ourselves a, a cannabis company. We, uh, are very open-minded and there's people who want to use root to grow plants that they don't have access to, maybe like saffron or, or St. John's wort, uh, things that you can't even get in at specialty stores. So cannabis happens to be a big area, but we don't define ourselves by just one plant. And we believe people get healing from all sorts of plants, even basil. It's definitely a growing market and people are interested. You know, we developed this too because we saw that there were food deserts in the world where people only had 7-Eleven as an option to get their groceries. And that is something that we are more passionate about providing. Wow. I'm already thinking. I have to admit, I'm like, hmm, what, what am I going to grow in my, my root pod? I like St. John's Ward or some type of uh, medicinal herb would be cool. I'll have to consult with you on what, uh, I mean, can you combine a number of different types of crops or do you, so, you only have one or two? How does that work? The way we program the lights and the watering is based on a, a certain set of plants. So right now we don't have too many complex programs, but basically cannabis would have different settings than, or flowering plants, I should say, have a different setting than lettuce that maybe needs more water and, and flowering has certain hours uh, in which lights need to be on and off. So... But generally speaking, like you can do a root for your herbs, a root for mixed greens, and then a root for flowering plants like tomatoes and cannabis. It's all got to work together with the lights. And it's it, because of the app and because of the way it's programmed, I'm guessing that it can the machine can get smarter over time or you can add more uh, lighting, uh, you know, light scheduling, LED lighting scheduling, as long as you have the app. Yeah, and we want to make it as simple as possible. A lot of people don't know like what spectrums they should be using at different stages. So we have pre-programmed lighting spectrums. And in the beginning, we're just going to keep it very simple. We want to see what people want to grow and then move in that direction as, as people start using these more. Amazing. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming onto the show. 
if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to, uh, for them to reach you? Um, yeah, they can just email me at eric at growwithroot.com. And I spell Eric with a C, so E-R-I-C at growwithroot.com. Awesome, man. Well, really exciting stuff. And thanks again for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me, Matt. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com.